This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are almost heretical. The fundamental framework shifts from a Western legal courtroom, which is adversarial, to a medical framework where there's a doctor who's trying to work with you, trying to work with the patient, and trying to get you bought into the treatment. So, of course, there's commands because the doctor says, this is what's really important for you to do. You got to do this. And, and, and there's expectations. But the dynamic of love and wrath is different because the doctor is wrathful towards the disorder, the corruption of sin in our bodies. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Welcome back to Almost Heretical. This week, we're jumping into a series of conversations on atonement. And we're super excited to have the first conversation with our first guest to the show. Mako Nagasawa is joining us today. and He grew up in Cerritos, California, studied industrial engineering and public policy at Stanford, and then went on to work at Intel. Served in a Spanish-speaking ministry to Mexican immigrants in East Palo Alto, California. Co-authored Lazarus at the Gate, Economic Discipleship Curriculum with Dr. Gary Vanderpoel, and contributed to the Justice Study Bible as a commentator on Ezekiel. He's currently working on Christian restorative justice curricula. He's married with two kids, currently lives in Intentional Community House in Dorchester, Massachusetts. Am I saying that right? Dorchester? Cool. So, Mako, I know from talking to you in the past and reading up on a bunch of your articles on New Humanities Institute that I guess one way of saying it is you've got a bit of a, a chip on your shoulder uh, in terms of the idea of penal substitutionary atonement. And a lot of your work, especially a lot of your theological processing, has focused on interpretations of the atonement and how particular interpretations lead to consequences and, and ideologies that some for the better and some for the worse. So I guess before we jump into it, I'd just love to know uh, how that idea or how this uh, topic became something significant for you? I, I do spend a lot of time at, at this point talking about atonement because I, I feel like it's, it's, um, it's, it's not the only thing that, that I'm concerned about or that people can be concerned about, but it's kind of the, the hub of Christian theology, and it's kind of one or two steps removed from every other major topic in Christian, you know, thought. And so it affects our, our view about the father-son relationship, uh, the, the Holy Spirit, uh, conversion, what's a healthy conversion? Uh, what is God's justice? Is it restorative or attributive? Uh, how, do, how does that impact our ability to engage the criminal justice system and mass incarceration? Um, parenting, you know, I mean, it's, it's going to impact everything and it uh it kind of holds things in place uh, and so my you know my interest is, is that and it, it really is the coherence of um christian theological thought so i i would say it's this started for me you know some of my background uh is that i i came to faith in jesus in a in a free methodist context and then in college i had a a mentor who a college pastor who was a great expository preacher and uh, later you know he shared with me and others that he was a, a five-point Calvinist and I but I never would have guessed because he was so faithful to 
preaching the scriptures as best he could understand it in an expository way, which already tells you something about, okay, how do I perceive scripture and that kind of thing? But his big focus was union with Christ and our identity is in Christ. Christ lives in us by his spirit to pour his life and his love out through us. So there's a very um, grounded, Jesus-centered, experiential thing. Now, along the way, I'm pretty nerdy, and so I uh, would read things and be very fascinated by debates between Calvinists and Arminians. And, you know, there's a rationality, I think, to uh, there's a certain kind of rationality to the the five-point Calvinist system. And I, I guess at one point I would have consider myself one, but a reluctant one. I never felt really comfortable with the idea of a limited atonement because that had such direct implications for whether I can say to my non-believing parents, I know that God loves you, right? If, if I thought the atonement was limited from God's side in any way, I wouldn't have the confidence to say that. Would you be able, really quick, Mako, just because I'm, I'm wondering if maybe some people out there actually don't even know what we're talking about when we talk about penal substitutionary atonement or five-point Calvinism. So could you maybe just real quick, even just penal substitutionary atonement, maybe just say kind of a quick, you know, explanation of what that is for someone? Yes. I I would say here the dominant image, and then I'll give a definition, and then I'll I'll give, I'll talk about how that fits into the five-point Calvinist system. The dominant image is one of uh, a Western legal courtroom where God is a judge. He has a law. Uh, we broke the law, so he, God brings us into his courtroom to stand trial. He is judge, jury, and executioner, pronounces guilty, the sentence is death. And then Jesus enters the courtroom and uh, takes the sentence of death for us and instead of us. And, and so God the Father exhausts his wrath, or he uh, satisfies his retributive justice against Jesus and then has nothing left over for us. So we, if we believe in Jesus, would get forgiveness and kind of the ability to relate to God without the fear of punishment. Now, uh, that's the kind of the, the dominant analogy or image that some people have have used. The, the idea is essentially theologically that God's justice is retributive, and he needs to satisfy that retributive justice in order to move us into a a different category of how he would relate to us through grace, love, and mercy. Does that make sense? No, yeah, definitely. I think that's really helpful. So it's called penal substitution because the, the main thing that's going on is a penalty. It's penal because there's a penalty being paid. Uh, that would ordinarily fall on on us in hell, but Jesus interposes himself and takes the bullet or takes the punch, as it were, from God the Father. Usually, that's how it's portrayed. Uh, some people try to nuance that a little bit, but it, it's hard to completely escape the, the sense that it's God the Father who punishes Jesus. And it's substitutionary because Jesus substitutes himself in for for us, we would ordinarily get that in in hell, in a retributive kind of hell, who's who, which looks like and and functions the same way as a a, a prison, right? We would want to get out, but God keeps us in because he the the whole reason for him upholding our existence is to punish us uh, and to make us feel pain. So that that would be kind of the, a, a decent definition of penal substitution and why it's called that. 
and how it fits into the five-point Calvinist system is <clears throat> in the following way. Uh, five-point Calvinists believe in tulip, total depravity, uh, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Um, and, and folks can look that up. I'll just say that the, the probably the most important logical piece is that God uh, has to decide beforehand how much of his retributive justice and wrath Jesus is going to absorb. And because in the Bible there there is a you know at least the suggestion or likelihood that there's going to be people who won't believe in Jesus in that system, therefore they're going to go to this prison that the Bible calls hell. And uh, they're going to experience the wrath of God themselves. But that means that Jesus uh, could not have paid the penalty for them because if if he did, there would be no wrath left over, right? So God's wrath, you know, in this model pertains to persons. It is, in some sense, infinite, and so Jesus takes the punishment for um, for the elect, uh, because God has to save some. God wants to save some people, and he he will or maybe needs to uh, damn other people to hell. And in again, in some systems. Uh, you know, the Westminster Confession, for instance, that this is because God has two major attributes. On the one hand, he has love. On the other hand, he has retributive justice. And, you know, un- underneath love, there's mercy, grace, and, and stuff like that, and forgiveness. But uh, And under retributive justice, there tends to be a uh, clustering, right, of, uh, of terms, wrath, uh, holiness, perhaps, and essentially, in order for God to show all of who he is for eternity, he, he has to save some people to show them his good side, and then he has to damn other people to hell in order to show them his tough side. So the, the, the L in the tulip system is uh, for limited atonement because the atonement has to be limited only to some uh, on God's side, like somehow God has to limit the number of people he really wants to save, and it has to be discreet, uh, because there, there are other people, there, there's an indication that there are other people in hell. So that would be how it fits into the overall system. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was, because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. It works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I mean, I grew up probably nearly five point Calvinist, and you know, didn't necessarily really examine that or look at that until I was like teaching, and then I was going, "Wait, what am I? What am I saying here? And and do I actually even believe this?" And uh, I think part of the part of the issue was it started to, yeah, it kind of felt like it was it led to a lot of different problems, and you even started to kind of talk about some of the the problems that it leads to, and I guess that's. You know, that's sort of my question. What would you kind of say to someone um, as far as kind of explaining like what this can potentially lead to? Because I think for a lot of people, I mean, this is, that's the gospel that you just laid out. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's the the word of God, good news, gospel. Um, and yeah, it's tough. It hurts, but it's, you know, that's just, that's just the fact of it. Like it's tough sometimes, but that's the, that's the truth. That's the gospel. Um, so yeah, what, I guess, what would you say to kind of convince someone that like this, this can lead to problems and like, what would those problems be? I'll get back to some of my personal journey. I think, um, having non-Christian, uh, parents, I, I didn't co- grow up in a Christian family, uh, of course puts, uh, puts it on the, the table. Like, how do I speak to them about Jesus and, and how am I thinking about this? So I would like to say God loves you. I know that Jesus died for you. But in a in a system, in any system where the atonement is limited from God's side, I, I wouldn't be able to say that. Uh, I and, and there are some people I know who are admirably trying to be consistent. Like, maybe we can say God saves, uh, or, or Jesus came for sinners. And you might be one of those sinners, <laughs> right? But who knows? Um <clears throat> You know, so they kind of go up the, uh, they kind of become a little more abstract and less personal. And I guess that's maybe possible. Um, but th- that's, that kind of eats away at your soul. Now, I, you know, depending on, I, I was also exposed to more Ar- Arminian ways of thinking. And my understanding there is uh, they just do funny things with time. Right, so God looks ahead in time and then um, sees who will accept Jesus, and then then God sends Jesus and limits the atonement that way. You know, which is a little. I, I think um, it's a way to honor the idea of human free will, but it still leaves you with the same basic question. Can I tell this person God really loves you that I know Jesus died for you, you in particular, not just someone um, or some people that you might be, you might be part of them, but you, um, you know, and of course there, there are lots of verses that would speak to it, the idea. It seems that, that Jesus died for, for everyone right, that the, the atonement is open in some way. Um, Ezekiel, starting in Ezekiel 18, verse 32 and 33, God desires that no one would perish. If that's true, then why would he limit the atonement? Um, you know, 1 John 2, uh, 2 Peter 3, you know, John three sixteen, Jesus died for the, came for the world. Um, 
there's there's just a, a whole bunch of things. First Timothy uh, two, the the one mediator between God and man, and uh, is, is for all men. So you know there there are just a lot of verses that speak directly to this this question. Did God limit the atonement in any way from His side? And it it seems like the answer is is no. So that was the first piece of the the puzzle for me, and and because I I felt like I could distinguish between you know more or less biblical studies, kind of what what does what is the Bible saying, versus a kind of systematic theology which tries to come behind the Bible, uh, I would say, and and tries to explain certain things by emphasizing some things and not others, or configuring uh, things that way. Uh, you know that that was that was one way to to approach the whole issue, but it it wasn't really satisfying. So you know I. I became just really interested in, in biblical studies, and because I perceived the field of systematic theology as really just a, a, a place where Calvinists and Arminians debated each other, I, I felt like I'm really not interested, uh, because I don't feel like there's much resolution there. Um, I, I Later, and I'll come back to this, I, I discovered that systematic theology is broader than that, and uh, I was pleasantly surprised. But probably in my mid-20s, I did a, a really serious study of how did the Apostle Paul motivate people? Because uh, this kind of steps into a second concern that I had. I had heard uh, primarily Asian American pastors and preachers from time to time use penal substitution from the pulpit. And it made God sound a lot like an Asian parent. And what I mean, what I mean by that is, my parents told me a lot. Um, we sacrificed a lot for you, or you know, they, don't you know how much we sacrificed for you, or don't you know how how much this we we've paid for this, and. <clears throat> That always felt somewhat strange, because you know I can I can question some of those things um, on on just practical grounds, and but I, I you know I I knew they loved me and I knew they meant well. It, it's just that what the the type of motivation that created in my heart was one of joyless obedience. Like, well, I was just born into this whole system, and. I, I recognize that I, I uh, ought to be thankful, but I, you know, it just feels weird, uh, like this transaction that I didn't actually choose into. So, so I, I felt like somehow penal substitution uh, makes God sound like that. Uh, and it's a powerful motivation because, of, of course, when someone suffers on your behalf, something they didn't deserve, but it's, you know, for for us in some way, it, that that's that's powerful. I mean, who among us doesn't respond to that? But I I felt like one of the, uh, you know, assignments or challenges that I had early on in in life was uh, lead lead. Uh, I actually preach. 
and lead a discussion on Romans 6, 1 through 11, which said, Paul is answering the, the question, um, why should we, why can't we just go on sinning? And he says, you died and rose with Christ. And I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> I had heard, primar- or, you know, I primarily internalized this view that Jesus died instead of me. But what Paul was saying in Romans 6 is Jesus died ahead of me. He died first and rose again, and I died and then rose again. So, you know, that that sounds very similar, but actually it starts to diverge very quickly. Um, I had, uh, I looked at it from a motivational standpoint or from a rhetoric standpoint, and I recognized, hey, you know what? I, um, I've studied uh, schooling and teaching, and at one point I was interested in being a high school teacher. Uh, I studied public policy of education, and, and so one of the things that I had heard was that <clears throat> one of the, when students are struggling, there, there are things that a teacher could say, but probably shouldn't. And then there, there's things that teachers can say they're more effective. And one of the things that is not effective is, you know, what are these, what are these grades? What are you, stupid? And, <clears throat> you know, of course, that's negative because that reinforces shame and, and things like that. Um, it even sets an expectation for that person to fail. The, the teacher could also say, what are these grades? Don't you know how hard I'm working and how much I'm sacrificing for you? You know, and there's probably truth to that from a certain perspective, but if that's like what the teacher primarily feels, then that's that's bound to create some conflict, some pretty complex feelings about how the student feels being in that classroom. Um, and and, and so the, the best thing for a teacher to say is actually... What are these grades? This isn't who you are. That's what I recognize Paul was doing, but in a spiritual way. He was he was saying, don't do this because it's not who you are anymore. You've changed. So, you know, it's not that it's not that God has somehow changed the category or the attribute that he relates to you through or that God changes his mind or anything, but but that God has found a way to change you and me. So I, I looked for that. What is this dying and rising with Christ? Where does that happen in the New Testament? Where is that discussed? Um, and, and how is that used, uh, for example, by Paul as a way to motivate people? And I found it everywhere, everywhere. So 1 Corinthians 1 through 6 uh, 11 through 14, and then 15. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3 through 5, primarily, although 8 and 9 has this great piece. Uh, Philippians 2 and 3, Galatians 3, 4 and 5. Uh, all over Ephesians, being in Christ. Uh, and of course, Romans. Romans primarily 6 through 8. So, uh, and then I, I noticed John uses a lot, being in him. You are in him, you're, you're in me, uh, I'm in you. There's this reciprocal language of, of being and identity. That was profound because I think um, trying to be consistent with one's identity 
is a different motivation than, well, something was done for me and there was a transaction that kind of relates to me, but, uh, you know, I, I was feeling this sense of debt obligation. Uh, you know, I know I, I'm, this is supposed to sound good to me, um, and I should be thankful, but it just sounds like an incredible debt. H- how does one get out of the sense that, uh, man, this just makes me feel more terrible? Um, yeah, I just, this is like, it's making me think, and I, I've read some of your uh, some of your articles on new, newhumanityinstitute.org, and y'all should check that out. Um, lots of great stuff on there. And one of yours is called Atonement in Scripture, Why Trump and Cruz Are the Direct Logical Result of American Evangelical Theology. And uh, yeah, if you could just maybe like talk to that for a little bit, because I'm curious as we talk about like the problems that this can lead to, uh, maybe draw that out and where's that connection? Um, Because that's a pretty, that's a pretty bold statement. And I'm just curious to hear how you draw that out. Retributive justice is is the main connection, right? If what uh, if if what is really kind of in the heart of God is retributive justice, then um, on some level uh, we should pattern our criminal justice system, our our policies, um, schools, parenting on the principle of restorative justice, and in some understandings of Christian faith, that's what the church should do if it has influence in the state, right, in politics, is set up highly retributive systems so that um, people can appreciate it uh, to hear Jesus died to take the punishment that you deserved so it doesn't fall on you. Does it, so the connection fundamentally is the idea of retributive justice uh, and the 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 danger the the incredible danger of how our politics is shaped by our theology can be seen by uh, the number of I'm going to say primarily white evangelicals who be, who are influenced by their theology to to do things like um, argue for longer sentencing, to believe that uh, you know even even though the the evidence shows that the longer the sentence it, it really doesn't matter uh, in terms of rehabilitation or recidivism of of prisoners. We uh, you know the Southern Baptists endorsed the Iraq War without being asked. I don't understand why. Um, back in the the 70s, there was there were more evangelicals who believed in the Vietnam War than the general population. Why? <laughs> the and I could list category after category. The Pew Research uh, Foundation, you know, has has looked at beliefs about um, Christians. Uh, of evangelicals who who look at a person's economic struggles and and perhaps limitations or failures and believe that if you're poor it's your fault 
even though there are lots of other factors that contribute to why a person or a family might be in poverty. There's just, um, there's just no real reason to isolate it down to the person's merit or deservingness for um, hardship. So that, I, I think the, the connection then to explicitly, to, to answer your question to Trump and Cruz, would be that, and, and I wrote the article during the campaign and, and not, you know, after the election, but, uh, but because they represent two major alternatives that white evangelicals have opted for. One uh, is the uh, trying to be the more disciplined approach. I I think Ted Cruz embodies that, Uh, you you know, like cutting back on government spending of all sorts, not just balancing the budget, but getting, uh, you know, retracting the government out of social welfare programs, poverty poverty alleviation, trying to privatize things, um, social security, schooling, uh, healthcare, and, you know, and dramatically cut back on that. The, uh, the alternative is Trump, who I think the appeal, I mean, at this point, looking back, there's been a lot of study and discussion and, and interviews done, and I think it bears out, you know, part of the reason why people uh, opted for him is, is they wanted to uh, take retribution out on the system. They couldn't. They felt like they couldn't trust career politicians anymore, even Republicans like Ted Cruz. Um, I mean, I I really liked Ohio Governor uh, Kasich and uh, could have supported him, but the 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 idea that you need an outsider to just go wreck the system for you um, or you know to 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 take retribution on in the culture wars where you just want to uh, feel like you're winning again you know on issues of abortion or gay marriage or things like that um, at the expense of so many other issues I think the impulse driving that is a desire for retribution. And um, I think that if if you think that that's the highest or one of the highest principles in God, like his nature is to be retributive, then I think that's, that leads to um, that that leads to retributive politics, retributive social policies, uh, and and a retributive attitude when it comes to participation, even in political dialogue and, and just political conversation. I just want to get even. It's a self-reflection yeah, that's really good, Mako. One of the themes that keeps coming up in our conversations is uh, this idea of 
examining the consequences like like you've been doing of our theological ideas and both in interpersonal relationships like what you're able to say to your parents and in our political thinking and basically a, a whole scale analysis of the ideology the fruit of our of our thinking uh and I'm curious, it sounds like you started seeing some some cracks uh, when you, you got deeper in your study of, of Paul. Uh, what was next for you in terms of actually giving you the, the feeling of freedom to step away from penal substitution and retributive justice as the, the primary motif here? Uh, coming back to my mid-20s, that I, I would say... Uh, you know, my commitment was to teach the text of Scripture, and if I was going to do that, then you know, wh- wh- who else to, what better to follow? Who else to to follow than Paul? So, how did he motivate people? Well, he he, I don't see him using penal substitution in order to motivate people. I see him using union with Christ again. Those scriptures that I listed. So, from a pastoral perspective, I I ask the question: Where does anyone use this? And there are a couple places, possibly Galatians 3 or 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul talks about uh, he preaches the cross, or he talks about the death of Jesus. But those could be interpreted in other ways, which I'll I'll get to later. And so it wasn't clear to me that that that's what he was doing. Uh, He certainly comes back to the resurrection and new creation, in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, where he says the gospel is all about resurrection, and in Galatians 6, what matters is new creation. So <clears throat> so it wasn't clear to me that we should just amputate, <laughs> you know, 1 Corinthians 1 off from 1 Corinthians 15 and and reconstruct Paul's preaching hypothetically as if he, he just uh, preached penal substitution. Um so from a pastoral and evangelistic perspective, that didn't seem to hold up. Uh, I looked at the book of Acts and asked, does anyone do evangelism in Acts using penal substitution? The answer is clearly no. All of the reasons that the apostles give for their preaching, why should I believe in Jesus, is it either fulfills prophecy or it's how the, the Creator God demonstrates his commitment to this world, or, or the, the, he's the Davidic king. And, and here's the scriptures that corroborate that, uh, miracles. I mean, there's a, there's a wide number of foundations and, and also a wider set of motivations, I think, that the apostles are appealing to in people as they say, here's why I want you to believe in Jesus. Here's why I think you, you ought to follow him. So... Uh, basically, I looked at the New Testament <clears throat> and asked, well, when would I use this idea? And it's not clear to me that I ever would. Now, <clears throat> so I set it aside, and, and I focused primarily on union with Christ and dying and rising with him. Uh, there were a few other things in, in, you know, in life and ministry, and trying to serve other people, trying to think through um, ministries, you know, my participation in them, where um, other things also percolated up as well. But I'll, I'll kind of shift, and you know, and and the 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 political is one of them. Um, another angle is 
What about restorative justice? What if God's justice is restorative and not retributive? And uh, N.T. Wright talks about this. I was exposed to his writings, and I really appreciated. Uh, but when it comes to the idea of justification, he even refers back to Alistair McIntyre's book, Iustitia um, Dei. And that was published, I think, in the the 80s or 90s. And it, it's been around. He just... Um, uh, does this incredible tour de force of where the idea of justification comes from and comes to the same conclusion. God's justice is restorative. You see it in the Old Testament when uh, God, in Exodus 21, verses 18 and 19, uh, Moses says, hey, if you're in a fight with a neighbor and you injure him, then you got to help him out until he's completely healed. And, and then a little bit later, at the end of that chapter, it's, you know, if you, if you have got an ox, uh, you were told that this ox is going to gore people, you don't do anything about it, so you're negligent, the ox kills people, then you, you are liable, but, and, and it could be your life, but um, the victim or the victim's family can name a compensation price, right? This is, hey, this is what it would mean for us to uh, lose that person or lose their labor, uh, this is what we need to move on or to work towards our healing. And uh, and so there's a very restorative ethic. So the, the phrase, an eye for an eye, I, the more I looked into that, the more I felt like, hey, the, you know, this, this is not about retribution uh, because it's sandwiched in between those two principles. It, it actually, you know, that principle does exist in, let's say, the Code of Hammurabi, and it, it because of the context, you can tell it is really uh, retribution. I, If I hurt your eye, you should hurt my eye, and or someone should. Uh, but the Jewish people notice, uh, the, the rabbis and stuff comment on the eye for an eye principle and say, this is not retribution. It is, <clears throat> it, actually, they made a joke about it. They said, what if a blind man uh, hurts the eye of another man? You can't blind an already blind man, so this must refer to something else. And and also, uh, you know, what good does it do the whole society if like half of us are blind? So this must this must mean something else. They looked at the context. It says, and they made the conclusion that this is the outer limit of a fair compensation price of what I would need to do to help you if I injure your eye. So it is an eye for an eye. It's just that if I hurt your eye, I become your second eye. Does that make sense? Like, I help out, I, I contribute, I uh, work towards the, the losses that you've sustained to, to undo the damage that I've caused. So it's a restorative justice system. And <clears throat> there are other ways that I could demonstrate that. But the, if that's the case, then the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, or the, the, the Sinai Covenant and then Jesus, is not actually just one of threats and then relief, <laughs> right? Or the th- fear of punishment and, well, someone else took that punishment. It's it's more, there's something else happening. Uh, so the, the next major piece that I looked at was virtue ethics. Virtue ethics is the idea that it's not just about right and wrong behavior per se, although that's important. It's what impact does that behavior have on you and me as a person. Uh, what does that do to our character, our habits, our our soul, our emotions, and and even 
our brain formation, neuroscience tells us, for instance, that if if I watch porn or take cocaine or play excessive video games, there are neuro, uh, neurological pathways formed in my brain. I participate in my own formation, and my brain and other parts of me respond to my own choices. So <clears throat> when, it, it, when I want to be free from those impulses, if I want to reduce the impact of my own choices, I have to make... Uh, good choices, healthy choices, faithful choices in the other direction, to live in reality and not in escapism. Well, that's actually seen in the Old Testament as well. Uh, first place to look at, the easiest place, is Deuteronomy 10.16, circumcise your heart. The The idea is that the commands that God gives aren't for God, they're for us. So why should we... Why should we follow these commands? Well, it's because by doing them, we will cut something away from ourselves surgically that needs to be removed. And that's that's always been God's heart. Uh, Israel wouldn't be strong enough to do that. And so in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, God says, I'm going to have to do it for you. The Lord God will circumcise your heart after you go through this exile. Uh, after you you understand like uh, what this is, what this means a little bit more, but um, and and you, then you have no excuse to deflect the the internal problems that you have and blame it on something else. So uh, the the Jewish people and the Sinai Covenant always looked forward to not God dumping His anger somewhere else or just within Himself, but God changing us. He has to succeed in changing us somehow. Uh, that's found in Proverbs. I've got uh, notes on Proverbs that, that are up there. Proverbs has this view of us that the, our hearts are a tablet. Then we need to write on them. The whole reason why uh, we, would, we would keep the, write the, the commands of God or the Shema on little scraps of paper and keep it on our forehead or our wrists or post it in our doors, right, in Deuteronomy 6, is so that it can work from the outside in. We would be able to internalize them and write on our own hearts. That, that means that the, the first place to look in terms of why, why should I obey the commands of God is in myself. This is doing something in me. And that's restorative justice, too, because... Somehow the, the Adam and Eve have corrupted human nature, and we do things that um, and pass it on to us, and we do things that make it worse. And so, because we are God's prized possession, we're His works of art. We have to undo the damage that we've caused ourselves. That's what we're on the hook for. Uh, ultimately, this is what Jesus was able to do in Him, in Himself, with His own human nature first so that he could share his new humanity with us by his spirit and he could heal us. The the idea that the Old Testament is articulating God's retributive justice is a complete mistake. 
God's justice is restorative, and that we see that already in uh, the Old Testament. So then the, the, the other place that I uh, looked was the early church. So I, I took some uh, systematic theology classes um, in my 30s, and through, through that got exposed to um, uh, you know, some names that are probably a little more familiar, Karl Barth, T.F. Torrance, uh, and others, Thomas Wynandy in the, in the Catholic world, all of whom were looking back to Athanasius. And the, part of the reason for looking back to Athanasius is because Augustine made so many mistakes. And Augustine was 5th century, Athanasius was 4th century. Uh, you, you would think that people who are closer to the source, closer to Jesus chronologically, they, they've got something going for them, so, you know, th- that kind of works out. Uh, and there was a lot of consensus in the 4th century. Uh, Athanasius is not the only one. You have Gregory of Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa, Basil of uh, Caesarea, um, others in Alexandria, uh, Cyril of Jerusalem. I mean, they're, they're just incredible resources there. And what they all say is uh, Jesus shared in our broken human nature so that we might share in his healed human nature. That's not the exact language they used. They, they said literally, uh, what is not, that which is not assumed is not healed. In other words, what God does not take or assume to himself is not healed by him. It's not saved. It's not recovered from the sin, the death, the corruption, the taintedness. Uh, so they, they saw the atonement working out in a medical sense in Jesus within himself in an in interaction between his two natures, the, his divine nature and his human nature, somehow becoming more and more uh, transparent to one another, uh, joined to one another, uh, where, where he did something from within his human nature to make it fully compatible to his divine nature. And we see that in the transfiguration, especially, but also in the resurrection. So the, uh, the, the idea here is, is really different. The wrath of God did not fall upon Jesus. It was, you know, from the Father. The wrath of God and the judgment of God was exercised by Jesus upon the corruption in his human nature. So there, more scripture opened up for me there. John 5, where Jesus says, The Father entrusts all judgment to me, and the Father judges no one. And I would insert in there, not even the Son. The Father doesn't judge the Son. Because in John 16, verse 32, Jesus says, You, the disciples, you will abandon me, but the Father will not. And he's referring to the cross. So any idea of divine abandonment of Jesus just falls flat in the Gospel of John. There's no indication of that. Uh, Jesus says, the Father is always in me. I am in the Father. So so where does this idea of separation come from? Not from the Gospel of John. Uh, And and then Romans 8.3 stands out. The, he can, uh, what the law was powerless to do, or what the Sinai covenant was powerless to do, weakened as it was, was by the flesh of Israel, 
God did by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to, be, to condemn sin in the flesh of Jesus and to be a sin offering. Right? So the idea is um, Jesus condemned sin. How did he do that? By never sinning. And in Romans 6, 6, he crucified the old self. He put something to death in himself, an old mode of life or way of being. To tie it back to the older Old Testament language, the, the, the dominant language of salvation there is actually circumcision, circumcision of the heart. Paul brings that up in Romans chapter 2 and says this is the goal of the law, uh, that it would produce an Israelite with a circumcised heart, that there would be someone who would live in such deep, intimate partnership with God that they're able to take the, the real power and commands of God and reshape human nature within themselves so that they can bring the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And uh, in Romans 10.4, Paul says, Jesus is the telos, the climax of that covenant. So there, I mean, there's a lot there. I just ran through a bunch of scripture, some areas of concern again, and, um, and, and a way to hold things together. Yeah, so if, if I could try to uh, repeat back to you what it sounds like uh, I think you're trying to, to, to get at, Mako. It sounds like uh, in the, the penal substitution, retributive justice framework, which a lot of us uh, who came from evangelicalism were sort of uh, born and bred in, uh, the, the, the pillar of the whole thing is the idea that God is just in the sense that he is a, is a judge that has to punish. And, and the problem of, of sin is primarily a problem of guilt that therefore has to be punished by this just God. And it sounds like what you're trying to get at, uh, and, and part of the way you've gotten at it, is not just by a, a more careful reading, but trying to get back before the, the Protestant theology that we've been swimming in, which was largely built on top of Augustine's theology in the 5th century, and try to get back be- before those uh, uh, theological roots— and and finding that actually uh, the the core pillar motif is that God is a kind of surgeon trying to heal uh, because sin is essentially a kind of plague or sickness that has has ruined and hurt humanity. But because God loves humanity and the world, He's working and even giving up His own life to heal that sickness. Is that is that about right? Absolutely. And uh, that, that's where the, the fundamental framework shifts from a Western legal courtroom, which is adversarial, right? If you're, if you're in a courtroom with anyone, it's already adversarial, to a medical framework where there's a doctor who's trying to work with you, trying to work with the patient, uh, and trying to get you bought into the treatment. So, of course, there are, there's commands because the doctor says, this is what's really important for you to do. You got to do this. Um, but, and, and there's expectations. But the, the dynamic of love and wrath is, is different because the doctor hates the cancer in your body, right? Or the, 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 the doctor hates, the, is wrathful towards the disorder, the corruption of sin in our bodies. But he loves us, and, and actually the one relates to the other. That his love for us as persons 
is anchoring, it's fundamental to, and it informs his wrath against sin as a as a disorder, a corruption of something in us, a, a sickness or a, a virus or a disease of some sort. So, though, yeah, and that comes right out of the Old Testament, right after God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden. By the way, he does so because he's restorative. He, he doesn't want them to immortalize sin into their bodies by eating from the tree of life in a corrupted state. So, yes, it's a severe mercy, but it's a still a mercy because God says, look, I can still work uh, with you, uh, partner with you to bring about a human who will undo death and sin itself and then present to you a new choice. That winds up being Jesus, the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3. But if you immortalize sin right now, it's over. That would be the worst possible case. So he drives them out, exiles them, and uh, we become vulnerable to the creation. But also, he, God either stations or appears as, we don't know, um, a flaming sword. And that's where the motifs of fire and knife or sword come from. Fire because God burns things away in us that should not be there. Sword or knife because he cuts things out from us that should not be there. And circumcision follows in that thread all throughout scripture. And that's why circumcision is so important in the life of, in the story of Abraham and Sarah, uh, because God is cutting away sinful attitudes that relate to male privilege and power. Uh, then he, he takes it one step deeper and, and says, circumcise your hearts, Deuteronomy ten sixteen, Jeremiah 4, 4, you know, other, other places indicate that with slightly different language, but in the end, Moses comes back to it. The Lord will have to cut something away from you uh, with your partnership, because God always works with human beings in partnership. Um, he doesn't just do things to us, he does things with us, and that's that's fundamental. So the, the idea that um, God's wrath and God's love have the same object is is mistaken. God's wrath, see, in the in the Western legal courtroom, uh, God's wrath is uh, or the the wrath of a judge is directed at our personhood. Uh, in a, a medical framework, it is not. It's directed at the thing in us that is killing us, that is actually damaging our personhood and damaging our human nature. Um, you know, so God's love is directed at our personhood. God's wrath is directed at that which damages our personhood. It damages our relationship with him and our capacity to love and be whole. I, uh, I'm wondering, Mako, if you could maybe speak to, uh, I mean, I can even just feel it as I, as I listen to you, how much better and more beautiful and uh, more compelling a picture uh, this, this idea of medical uh, atonement paints, even just uh, the ways that you can talk about God <laughs> in your paradigm versus the ways that, that we're constrained to talk about God in some of the other paradigms and systems out there. Uh, I'm wondering if you could maybe speak a bit to 
some of the practical ethical ramifications for for then what it means for us who are following Jesus and who are who are living out this atonement, living out this new creation life. How, how have you seen uh, maybe some of this uh, theological shift uh, lead to some um, lived out, you know, real life uh, practical shift? You know, I there there was a i think this has impacted parenting for instance um uh one of one of my kids you know at one point uh was uh, fa- wrote on the the bathroom stalls of their elementary school happy death day and that, that it was a they they were tempted to do that by another kid in the class and and um they thought it was funny at the time, but it's it really scared the first graders, and the first graders went and, and told the teacher, and uh, later this the, the child the children confessed. So, um, you know, I was mad, but I had to ask myself, what is my objective here? Um, if if my goal is to really continue working <laughs> with my kids, then. Um, what would be a good way to ask them to respond? And it was a restorative justice uh, type of moment. What I'm, what I love is them as people. What I'm upset with is the damage that they've caused and the the habits that uh, of mind that might be formed here. So uh, I talked with the teacher and the principal, and we decided that uh, they would have clean up duty at the school for like a week, different chores to, to clean the physical property of the school because they damaged the property, right? And so it, that which you damage, you must help restore. So that was one area. Uh, also, the first graders, their feeling of safety was damaged at the school. And so uh, I had this child, and I helped a little bit, but helped this child, uh, my kid, bake brownies and take it in to the two first grade classes and publicly apologize. I mean, the the child had fessed up to teachers before, but not to the first graders, but publicly apologized to them for uh, what they did and, and said this, I want to, I want you to, to feel safe here. And I, I want to undo the damage that I've caused. Does that make sense? I mean, so I think this has real implications because it's not just that <clears throat> uh, I want to punish um, there, you know, and to inflict pain, um, but that that would be a retributive model. But a restorative model is, well, there are consequences, but I want your buy-in to undo the damage you've caused, uh, and I want to partner with you to do that. Because ultimately, this is what helps you learn what it means to be a, a kind person, <laughs> a repentant person. And, uh, and so I, I think it starts really, really clear. And uh, or it starts early, it starts at home. And I, I, again, I think that the Bible's full of these kinds of things. Uh, if we had more time, we could get into it. But I, I think that's a first area. Yeah, I I love that you bring up parenting, Mako. I mean, Nate and I are both new dads with two-year-olds, and uh, I know both of us come from 
the wing of the church that I, I don't think it's too much of a caricature to say that that a, a parent's primary job is to essentially discipline the will out of our kids uh, so that they will essentially grow to be subservient, obedient uh, beings. And I, I've already deconstructed that, and I know that's not what I want to do, but, but reconstructing uh, another uh, paradigm to, uh, to draw wisdom for how to parent, uh, that's a much tougher, <laughs> tougher ball game. So it sounds like part of what you're touching on is if, if the primary goal is healing individuals and healing communities, and, uh, and part of our goal then is, is giving kids the, the tools, the skills, the, uh, you know, the character, whatever it would take to participate in that healing, if, if that's one of the primary ways that we can approach parenting, it's still going to be pretty dang hard. But it's it certainly gives me a whole lot more to hope for than than just trying to punish my son away from doing bad things. I think it's harder, right? Like it's it's actually harder. It takes more like creativity and uh, like imagination. I think, right? I I think so. That's my experience because you know I, I think that it takes more self control, self discipline on my part to uh, to to perceive what's going on and to talk to my kids about that and, um, you know, and yes, to be creative about how, how, how do I think, um, the restoration could go? I I think theologically, I mean, what you just described him, I, I would say it's almost as if the doctrine of creation didn't matter anymore. Right. Or it's as if the idea of the fall and the, original sin uh is the starting point and there there is no longer an image of god functionally speaking so um you know i think we have to take of course we have to take sin seriously but if if we if we act think and especially at parent as if uh the image of god were obliterated already in our kids then there, that would be really damaging to them. Uh, and what I mean is, I think everyone still is is desiring love, goodness, truth, um, justice, beauty, order. They just don't know where to find it, right? Like in a in a concrete sense, because ultimately all those desires will lead us to God who is himself love and goodness and justice and beauty and order and just uh, fellowship and, and family and all these, the, the things that our hearts long for. The image of God is still in, uh, we are still in the image of God. That's not completely gone. Sin misdirects us. Uh, it confuses our perception. We're, our minds are affected. and And then we start to you know, make choices that could make it worse. But I don't think that it's ever gone. I mean, Paul in Romans 1 and 2 talks about the conscience. That has to be God working to always call out to people, every single one, not just the elect, but everyone. And so it, you know, that that's a general baseline. And then there's just the uniqueness of every person. Um 
because of the manifold wisdom of God, that there's no, you know, all humanity stacked up and totaled up doesn't doesn't equal the 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 fullness of God. So you know, there's there's some indi- very personal individual things about every one of us that needs to be considered. But it, you know, I I think that's the way I've tried to parent is uh, to help my kids understand. Look, God made you. There, there, there are desires in you that are for Him, and ultimately will lead you to Jesus. But also, because He will fully restore the image of God in in us. But also, it's practical in terms of your your sense of vocation. What what are you interested in? Do you like working with other children? Do you, do you like solving problems? Do you like tinkering with uh, tools you know all, there's there's all these kinds of things that are that are part of the who we are as God's creations and creatures and we we need to discover them we need to uncover them in our children we need to shape them yes uh, and to help them see that Jesus they need to personally give their own lives to Jesus so that he could fill all of that of that out for them. Um, but I think that it's a, it's a huge disservice to just start off with Genesis three, as if that's what, uh, our children are. They're just fallen. Um, yeah, that, that would be pretty harsh. I think we've got to work towards wrapping up pretty soon, but there's uh, there's something I, I want to ask you, too. Thinking more uh, larger scale, Maka, that's, I think parenting is a great example on the individual, interpersonal. Um, but when you get to maybe broader culture, and especially thinking about the church in America, the evangelical church, uh, you know, it... I, I tend toward, per, personally, I tend toward the pessimistic, cynical, <laughs> cynical side. Um, but, I mean, it's just a year and a half ago that uh, even in, in liberal California, uh, largely it was the evangelical support uh, that turned down an opportunity to revoke the death penalty in in California. And and to me, I just look at the irony that, that the, the church of of people who profess to follow a guy who was executed by the state would endorse the death penalty, but wholesale uh, dis- disavow any idea of reparations or restitution. The, the, the whole thing seems so upside down to me. I guess I'm wondering... You know, we're here trying to have conversations like this to to be a part of moving things forward and and uh, trying to paint a bit a bit of better a bit of a better path. But do you have much hope that there could be you know large scale reformation of the church away from this uh, this conviction about retribution that's kind of the the central pillar of everything? I absolutely do because you know fundamentally Jesus's ethics. Uh, call us to go beyond uh, retribution. And so somewhere there's a short-circuiting happening in especially the the, um, white evangelical world uh, where we're we're not 
totally thinking through Jesus's ethics. Either we're falling back into a paradigm of what we perceive as the Sinai covenant, as if that was about retributive justice, and and then you know like mercy and grace is what we talk about at church, and and maybe we extend that to each other, but not in any serious social way. <laughs> the problem is that this is being done, or, well, the I wouldn't say the, the problem, the, the opportunity is is seen all across the globe and even in the U.S., right? The more we look at church history, the more we see that actually Christians were, were um, they set about with abolition, trying to restore relationship, uh, good relationship. And so by the, you know, the... Uh, the Middle Ages, all the way to the 1300s, Christian faith had abolished slavery in Northwest Europe and Northern Europe, uh, the only places in the world where slavery had been abolished. Why? Because there was a vision of good relationship that, that needed to be restored, restorative justice. That impacted criminal justice. Um, so, you know, just jumping ahead to modern times, the... Uh, there, you know, there was the incident with the Amish, where the shooter came into the Amish uh, community, in, into the school, shot some children, shot himself, and the Amish responded with grief, um, real grief, but also forgiveness for this man. And they reached out to his widow and said, "We don't, we don't hold you responsible for this, but you must be broken up. You, do you, would you want to grieve with us? We would like to know you and for you to know us." In this, and um, <clears throat> that was a really powerful, really powerful model and uh, example. And the, the, some of the people who noticed were actually juvenile justice officials in New Zealand. They paid attention to this, and they said, "We have a problem with youth violence and incarceration, and we we put kids into the school to prison pipeline way too quickly. So let's go over and." They went to Eastern Mennonite Seminary, and they learned from Howard Zare, who was a theorist and practitioner of restorative justice, and, and they learned from Mennonite Christians about restorative justice. They brought it back to New Zealand, implemented it in their juvenile justice system, and what happened? Well, you had uh, a lot of people trained as peer counselors, and uh, they, they diverted a lot of uh, kids from prison into other types of, of work, uh, the implemented restorative justice circles uh, as ways of conflict resolution. Crime goes down, achievement goes up, the, the jails are emptied, uh, or at least emptied may be too strong a word, but the, uh, you know, that, that, that actually happened. Um, in the Scandinavian countries, they've, they've applied more restorative justice principles, and Finland uh, ha- has had such success at it that they've had to convert their prisons into condominiums. I mean, wouldn't that be a great problem for us to have? Uh, in in African countries like South Africa, Rwanda, and Uganda, there have been truth and reconciliation commissions where it's it's it may be impossible to physically imprison as many people as committed crimes because it would bankrupt the country, but there still has to be some kind of closure, some kind of meeting between the offender and the victim, and some type of admission of responsibility, some type of victim-oriented request where the victim's voice matters more, and where the victim gets to say, in order to move on, I would be helped if you did this. 
and um, that's that was designed by African Christian leaders, and it's a huge gift to us because we we've begun to practice those kinds of things in public schools, in um, you know urban communities, and and we do that here in Boston. And uh, a friend of mine was involved in implementing restorative justice at five middle schools. It brought down bullying. And it has tremendous results. So, so I think there, there are very practical things. But again, it's just that I think evangelicals, um, and you know, again, primarily white evangelicals who hold a penal substitution, have this idea that retribution is key to public policy. And uh, you, you see it in, in the difference, for instance, between... Um, you know, how Catholics think of abortion and how um, evangelicals think of abortion. Catholics think of it as a, there's a seamless garment of life. So there's a, uh, we want to care for life in all its stages. And, um, you know, so so yes, they have strong views on abortion, but they also have, you know, strong views against the death penalty and for social welfare and, and so on and so forth. And there's a There's a consistency of an ethic of care for life because this is what it means to be in good relationship with one another. I think the the evangelical approach to politics has has been more we want to punish people who we think do, do wrong, right? And so, you know, Trump's slip about should women who get abortions be punished? Yes, that's what he said. Or doctors who you know like yes, it it just seems like we want to inflict punishment on people for becoming more promiscuous since the 1960s? Is that what, is that what we're trying to do? Uh, you know, the, the whole thing of the war on drugs, we want to punish people for the damage they're doing to themselves. We want to inflict more. Well, you know, and, and that's where racism comes in because it's easier to disassociate yourself with offenders. If someone is another race, that's just a psychological fact. Um, and, and so now that more white people have the opioid addiction problems, we we start to see drug abuse as a public health issue and not just something to be punished, right? We want to work with people. We want to re-empower their will. Uh, I think that's a good move. Uh, we need to do more of it. I'm saddened that it comes so late, right, in the game. Uh, after we've incarcerated people for nonviolent drug offenses and, and so on and so forth. So Michelle Alexander talks about that in her book, The New Jim Crow. So, you know, I, I just think we, we, have to, we, we have to start thinking again about what is God's vision for relationship as a totality? How, how, how do we care for life in every stage? And how do we move towards the restoration of of that, as opposed to just thinking about government as that's the thing that punishes people. Yeah, I'm curious, Mako, kind of shifting back towards um, atonement here for this last question. I guess, what would you say to someone who's really struggling um, with this all? Because it kind of feels like you're you changing the gospel that they that they have known. I, I don't know, Tim, maybe you have a better way of, of kind of phrasing that. Yeah, I think... Uh... I think we both know a lot of people, and, and I actually think I can identify with being in this space for a season myself, where uh, the problems start piling up, and I become really troubled with the view, but I've been 
essentially indoctrinated for so long that, that that view is the foundation which my whole faith system is standing upon. It feels really scary to walk away from that interpretation. So I think it's for that kind of person who, who sees the argument but feels scared to f- fly the coop, <laughs> why is it safe? It's hard to just give one answer to that because I, I think there are different types of people who would be troubled by penal substitution for different reasons, right? So uh, one of them is would would probably be uh, a person with an evangelistic heart who who just wants to be able to say, "I know Jesus loves you." That you know that was me early twenties, and 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 I think. Yeah, you you really want to pay attention to the inconsistencies about the the structure that is driving evangelistic statements and gospel statements because if if we don't really understand the character of God and the work of Jesus then that's you know that that's going to affect you downstream and you're going to get caught and tripped up in certain certain things. Another one is a kind of a pastoral concern of just someone who, who loves seeing people grow. Uh, I think the you know and, and wants and, and wants to disciple people and see people take good steps and healthy steps in their discipleship. Well, does penal substitution set a person up towards a growth-oriented conversion? Um, conversion, or does it set a person up to to say, well, if if God is never going to be frustrated, disappointed, or, you know, mad and wrathful at me again, then what does it matter to him whether I obey or not? Now, there are different ways to answer that question, but it's not really a clean shot. The, um, you know, the the other thing that happens, uh, I think, you know, and if you don't mind, Tim, something you said to me a couple years ago in a conversation has been really helpful, that often penal substitution creates a blind repentance. In other words, what do I need to believe in order to to receive that? Do I need to actually really think about what I'm repenting from and what kind of damage that I've caused? (laughs) Actually, no, I just need to, I just need to acknowledge that Jesus got punished instead of me. And if that's all I need to do, then, then it also sets up an expectation that, hey, I shouldn't have to be reminded of stuff that I've actually done that I need to be, you know, that I need to repent of because that feels like the works that I shouldn't have to think about or shouldn't have to do or that God no longer holds me on the hook for or accountable for and, and things like that. So our, our repentance, it leads to a blind repentance as opposed to medical substitution, which says, you know what, it's a problem with our human nature. Only Jesus fixes that. And everything actually that that is disappointing to God that we do flows out of the corruption of our of our nature so you ought you ought not to be surprised that you're gonna have to you're gonna have to do things in partnership with the Lord uh, empowered by his spirit participating in Jesus's work on our behalf to address some of these things that I've done before I need to go make amends I need to go make apologies I I need to act restoratively in the world. Why? It's because I've done things to others and to myself that need to be corrected. My neural circuitry needs to be rewired, right? So so when we think of discipleship and uh, calling other people to obedience, uh, it's not just because 
you know, uh, it, it's not because God somehow keeps an imaginary score sheet somewhere uh, still, but actually it's because it affects us. And uh, we need to be undoing the damage in us and in the world. So from a discipleship perspective, there's that. There's a social justice perspective. If, if people are working or are recognizing, and the, the, the evidence is indisputable, that restorative justice works better than retributive justice in, in every situation with every conceivable goal that we can have, right? Like recidivism rates, um, keeping kids out of the school-to-prison pipeline, undoing the effects of racism, and so on and so forth, then you're going to have to look for a theological foundation for that. Is God's justice restorative or is it retributive? And, you know, we have to ask that question. There's the person who cares about seeing consistency in Scripture. So if that's you, right, then there's all kinds of, well, uh, ways to do that, to, to honor that with um, of, of the, the medical substitutionary atonement, which focuses on human nature. What is it that happened in Adam and Eve? Why is Cain, why does Cain make it worse for himself? He curses him, his own human nature further, uh, and then God diagnoses the problem. Why is God always working uh, with people to undo something in themselves? Why does God present himself as fire, right? The whole motif of fire, we only, evangelicals tend to only look at the the negative side as when fire feels destroying to people, but we don't start with the positive side outside the garden or at Mount Sinai or in the burning bush when God is wanting to purify people. He says, Moses, come on up here. Actually, he called all Israel up there, but they didn't want to come. They didn't want to be purified. Moses' face shone because of this encounter with God. He was being purified, which shows that God's fire is purifying. The, the coal of Isaiah, purifying. John the Baptist says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Fire is good for us. Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes with fire. So fire is always God's attempt to purify, to restore that which must be restored, to burn away that which must be burned away. It's only if we want to hold on to what God wants to burn away does it feel destroying to us, but that's a matter of our perspective and our decision. So if you care about just the consistency of Scripture, then I I think there's just a lot more here. You know, so yeah, if, you know, there's a lot of other questions I'm sure people would ask. I've I've tried to address as many as I can on my uh, blog, newhumanityinstitute.org, and the, the link to the blog there, so people can certainly go there and uh, engage with me. I would love that, and uh, there, there are others uh, to whom I, I can you know, refer resources. So it, it is not a bleak picture. Um, I, I can certainly understand the, the feeling of being alone, and so I think there's, you know, we need to work at forums like this and um, conversations like this so that we can recognize that we are, we are not alone. In fact, you know, this is, I think, the healthiest part of uh, Christian ecumenism, 
the Eastern Orthodox and most Roman Catholics, at least on paper, also would res- would recognize this and hold to it, or at least respect it. C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, they were all about this. So why is it that we're so drawn, you know, to these great stories, these great authors? Um, I think it's because they were telling us the truth the whole time. No, that's awesome. That's that's what we're trying to do with this show is create that space for people who maybe feel alone and don't have um, a community or a place to go to to feel normal when they when they think about some of these topics in the Bible and uh, and maybe getting outside of the theological camp or circle that they um, that they kind of grew up in or, or were a part of. So yeah, this is great. We're probably going to have to have you back <laughs> to talk about, we didn't even get into Harry Potter or, or anything that uh, we really wanted to talk about. So um, we'll def, <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely have you back. Um, but thank you so much for coming on. So new humanity, new humanity org. That's where people can, can find your work. Yes. Thank you so much, Tim and Nate. This is a heroic undertaking on on your part. Thanks so much, Mako. You've been really a wonderful source of wisdom and encouragement. Uh, It's so good to talk to you again after, what, a year and a half, two years, something like that. So thanks a ton for coming on. Thanks for having me on. All right, well, huge thanks to Mako Nagasawa for joining us on this first episode talking about atonement we'll be back next week to continue the discussion we'd love to hear any questions or thoughts you might have feel free to email us at contact at almost heretical.com all right we'll see you next week